Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapters 25 and 27. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time today. If you are with us this morning and this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, We're glad you're here. We have guests with us every week, and we're glad that you are with us for whatever reason that you are with us this morning. Uh, If you've got, if you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to be able to follow along with us, there are Bibles in the chair racks there in front of you. You should be able to find one within a few spaces of where you're at. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay too. We have people all the time with us who don't know where anything in the Bible is. But you're in luck today. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, so this is going to be an easy one to find. So go to Genesis if you'd like, and then make your way to chapter 25, which is where we're going to be spending uh, some of our time together today. Last week was Easter Sunday, so we're going to be picking up from where we left off two weeks ago. This is, a, this is the second of a two-part sermon in Genesis chapter 23 to 27. And last week, or two weeks ago, we started looking at the story of the life of Jacob and Esau. And we are using this story of Jacob and Esau to explore the idea of God's sovereignty. That may be a new concept for some of us, uh, but, but God's sovereignty simply refers to His lordship over His creation, the fact that He is in control of His creation. Now, one of our problems is human, as, as human beings is that we want a God who conforms himself to our expectations of what he ought to be like. And I want you to think about how interesting a thought that is, that finite human beings who exist as a blip on the, the grander scale of time Human beings who are equipped with unique personalities, who are, who are located in a particular era of time, who are situated in a particular culture, would demand that God fit our preconceived notions of how He ought to be. And yet we do this all the time. We do it when it comes to God's sovereignty. We want God... God's sovereignty to be selective, meaning I want God to be in control when I want Him to be in control. So when I'm in a jam, I would very much like God to be in control. When I need a miracle, I would very much like God to do a miracle. When I need God to do something for me that I want Him to do or that I expect Him to do, I very much want Him to be able to do that thing. But then there are other times when I would prefer that He not be sovereign. I don't want Him to make some of the choices that He makes. I don't agree with the way He has ordered this world. And so we want a God oftentimes as human beings that's sovereign in the ways we want Him to be sovereign. And the rest, thank you very much, will leave to us. But that... It doesn't work like that. God is either sovereign or He's not. 
God is not partially sovereign when we think it's appropriate. And then step back when we've decided, hey, you've overstepped your bounds, God. He is either sovereign, he is either in control, or he isn't. Those are the only two choices. And the Bible, I believe, presents us with a picture of a God who is, in fact, fully sovereign over the world that he has created. And we began exploring two weeks ago this idea as it relates to God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in his choices. God is sovereign in his choices. And I said two weeks ago that I wanted to make two observations about God's sovereignty in his choices that show up for us in the stories of Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers. The first observation I made two weeks ago was this. God's sovereign choices often defy human expectations. God is constantly doing things in the arrangement of his world that make us say things like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And we see it in the story of Jacob and Esau when they're, when they're born uh, God tells Rebecca, their mother, that there's something unusual that's going to happen with these boys. They're twins. Esau is going to be born first. Jacob's going to be born second. But, but God tells her that the, the younger is actually going to be over the older. The older is going to serve the younger. And these two twin brothers are going to represent two nations as their lives and their des- descendants unfold over time. And this arrangement defies expectations for a couple of reasons. First of all, it defied the idea of birth order. Now, birth order is not a huge deal for us, but in the culture of the time, the, the child who was born first was the child who received the double portion of the family's blessing and was expected to take over as the leader of that family once uh, the leader died. The second thing, the second reason this would defy expectations, if you were just looking at Jacob and Esau and wondering who's going to be the ideal candidate to be a leader, you would go with Esau. Esau is the man's man. He's the alpha male. He's the hunter. He's the guy. Jacob is the guy that the Bible says dwells in tents. He's a little bit more docile, and yet this, this statement of God defies human expectations of what's going to happen. God is, is choosing for His covenant blessings to flow through the line of Jacob rather than Esau. And you can go back and listen to that message if you want to hear more about it. But I said last week that that we're using this to explore the interplay between God's sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility or human freedom or human choice on the other hand. Because inside the framework of God's sovereignty in this story, we see Jacob and Esau not at all acting as robots. They're making real choices as their lives unfold with real consequences to their choices. And that's what I want to turn our attention to today. The Bible basically gives us two main incidents from the the lives of these brothers together. And after these two incidents in in the Bible, the, the narrative of Genesis turns to then focus almost exclusively on, uh, on Jacob. 
But it gives us these two incidents from their lives that we want to explore a little bit. And the first incident is a microcosm of what their relationship is like and is going to be. If you're there in Genesis chapter 25, look with me at verse 29, please. Verse 29 says this, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. I'm literally going to die of hunger. Of what use is this birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. Bowl's yours. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we've got this picture of Esau being out in the hunt, and he comes home exhausted because there's, there's no fast food places on the way home from the hunt with whatever it is that he killed. So he comes home from the hunt exhausted and famished, and he asks Jacob for some of that red stew. And just an interesting little nerdy fact here uh, is, is that in the Hebrew there, the, the, the wording is literally, give me some of that red red. And this is a, this is a Hebrew way of, of writing in all caps. It's a Hebrew way of, 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 of noting kind of the demanding, entitled uh, way that Esau speaks to his brother. I'm dying of hunger. Give me some of that red stew right away. Make it snappy. And that's how he gets his, his nickname because the Hebrew word for red sounds like the word Edom. And that's where he gets his, that's where the pe- people of Esau end up being called Edom. And as you see the rest of the un- Old Testament unfold, ex- what God says is going to happen is exactly what happens. Edom and Israel are in constant conflict. It's not just the brothers, <laughs> it's the nations that they produce are in constant conflict with one another. Jacob takes advantage of the situation, and he swindles his brother to basically legally transfer the birthright of the firstborn to himself in exchange for dinner. And this sounds strange to us as modern people because, you know, you can say things all the time and it doesn't matter, do you have it in writing? Okay, but we don't live in a time at this point where you can pull out a piece of paper and notaries were probably... Uh, a mile's journey away, and you don't have a pen anyway. So they, would, they had different ways of making agreement. And what, what Esau does here is basically legally transfer his birthright to his brother in exchange for some soup. That had better be some good soup. It doesn't seem like a good trade, but the Bible tells us that, that Esau thinks so little of his birthright. He thinks so little of the family that he's been, been, been born into, the anticipation of the promises of God that come to that family, that these are not in any way an operational part of his life, and so he makes the trade. And that's the, that's the first story that we have between them that, that surfaces their choices here. And the thing that I want to note 
is that both of them make bad choices, right? Make sure we're all clear on that. Esau makes a, a bad choice in throwing something away. Jacob makes an unjust choice in swindling his brother. Okay? God, has, God has told, we don't know whether Jacob or Esau know anything of what God has told their mother, but we do know that this is not the way to go about getting God's promises. So both of them make wrong choices here. All right, then we get, then we get to chapter 26. Chapter 26 gives us a, a brief interlude from their father's life. So remember, their father's name is Isaac, and it gives us a brief interlude from, from Isaac's life. He travels to Gerar to meet Abimelech. Now, if you've been with us, you remember, wait, we've been to Gerar, and we've met Abimelech before. What, what, what happened in Gerar with Abimelech? Remember, that's where Abraham passes his wife off as his sister because she's so gorgeous that he doesn't want the king to kill him so he can basically have her. That's that's what happens with Abraham in Gerar with Abimelech. And in chapter 26, guess who does the exact same thing? Isaac. Isaac goes to Gerar, passes his wife off as his sister, just like his dad did, Abimelech gets mad all over again and says, what is it with this family? But the same thing happens at the end. Abimelech ends up, they, they patch things up, Abimelech ends up making the same sort of treaty that he's made with, with Isaac's father, Abraham, a treaty of peace between them. That's the last, basically, major story we have from the life of Isaac, except for the one that we're about to look at in 27. Okay, so now we're in chapter 27. And we have neared the end of Isaac's life. And once more in this story, we're going to see Jacob and Esau, inside the framework of God's sovereignty, we're going to see them make real choices with real consequences. Isaac is at the end of his life, and he has decided that he wants to, he is so near the end of his life, that he wants to deliver a final blessing to his favorite son. The Bible's told us that his favorite was clearly Esau. Rebekah's favorite is Jacob, and that's part of the issue between these guys, is that their parents play them off each other and have favorites. But, but Isaac decides that he wants to give his final blessing to his son Esau. And so he tells Esau, go out, hunt, bring back my favorite wild game, cook the meal for me that you know I love, we'll, have, we'll share this meal together, and then I will give you my final blessing. And we know as the story unfolds that, that he's near the end of his life and that he's becoming feeble. He, has, he can hardly see, he has trouble with his hearing, he is, he, is not in, he is not in possession of his, his full faculties. And Rebekah overhears Isaac telling Esau to go hunting to get the food for this meal. And as soon as Esau picks up his bow and arrow and heads into the woods, she runs over to tell Jacob, this is our opportunity to steal the blessing. You've stolen the birthright. Let's go two for two and let's steal the blessing. And she, so she says, I'm going, to, I'm going to go grab 
uh, whatever it is they cooked. I don't know if the Bible says what they cooked. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna make to the, make the meal, his favorite meal. You go get some of Esau's clothes. Then I'm going to put the meal in your hands, and you're going to go to your father who can't see, who can barely hear, and we're going to trick him into giving you the blessing that he wants to give to Esau. So Jacob points out the obviously obvious holes in Mama's plan. Well, how are we going to pull this off, considering the fact that, that, that I am not anything like Esau? And she basically says, trust your mother. And the thing, the visual that comes to my mind when I think of that is like from Tangled, the mom in Tangled sings the whole song, Mother Knows Best. That's the visual that comes in my mind when I'm thinking about the way the exchange. If you're going to turn this into a musical, you might do that. You might do that song. So Rebecca cooks up the meal. Uh, Jacob goes and gets Esau's clothes. Our lights go off. This could be a blessing for you. You can't see me now. And we're back. Sorry. You're out of luck. The plan is moving forward, and now, now Jacob is walking in to, to basically lie to his father one last time. And we're going to read these verses together in verses 20 to 24 of Genesis 27, because I want you to see the sustained deceptiveness, basically, that, that Jacob has to pull off here. Verse 20 of Genesis 27, so Jacob's walked in. Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Remember, he sent Esau off to hunt and find something and bring it back and prepare it. I mean, this is not a, this is not a microwave process. How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Yikes. I'm going to strengthen my lie with God. <laughs> then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Remember, he's half blind. And Jacob's mother, they've anticipated that this would happen, that we've already been told earlier in the narrative that when Jacob and Esau are born, uh, Esau is born with just this inordinate amount of hair all over his arms and body. And so, so they put goat hair onto Jacob's arms and on his neck so to try to throw his father off. Okay, verse 22, so Jacob went near to his father who felt him and said, the voice is, ja is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So, almost the text says, despite his misgivings, he blessed him. And we know it's a despite his misgivings because even after he delivers, going to deliver the blessing, it, verse 24 says, he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Jacob has now swindled his brother out of the birthright. And his father's blessing, he has had to lie repeatedly to 
his father to take advantage of him in his elderly and enfeebled state. Well, the height the, the tension gets heightened in our story because as soon as the blessing is delivered, guess who comes home? Look at verse 34. Esau has just walked in the door, found out what's happened, find out, found out that his father has just delivered his blessing to his cheating, lying, backstabbing brother. And he says, says, it says this in verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. I just want to stop on that for a moment. You know, we... We talk is cheap for us, but but when Isaac has delivered this blessing, he has it is it is like the physical act of giving something to him. They weren't just words that can can be just taken away or given away after to someone else after they've been given to another person. And so he says, "Your brother has." Come deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, behold, or behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Now remember, the Hebrew name Jacob is a play on the Hebrew word for heel. When Jacob, when Esau and Jacob were born, Esau is born first, and one of the unique things about their birth is that when he is born, his brother is reaching out to grasp at his heel, and so they named him Jacob, and yet because of Jacob's character as it unfolds through life, that, that, that heel grabber kind of terminology went from being something cute to, to signify the kind of person who is deceptive. The kind of person who is reaching out and grabbing other people by the heel to trip them up. And so Esau says, you guys gave him the right name. Deceiver. Despite Esau's pleading, Isaac tells Esau that what has been done is done. And Esau makes a decision in that moment. That as soon as his father dies, there's going to be a murder. He is going to take the life of his brother. And remember, we're in Genesis and we're separated from, uh, uh, we're separated from these chapters by a lot of time. But we've got Cain and Abel going on all over again. <laughs> brother against brother. And their mother, Rebecca, hears about this or finds out about it some way. And she tells Jacob... You need to get out of Dodge quick because your brother intends to kill you as soon as your father passes away. And so she tells him that he needs to escape back to her brother's household, which is far away. Okay, that's, those are the two stories that we have that give us a flavor for the relationship between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And as I said earlier, we see Jacob and Esau making real choices inside the framework of God's sovereignty. And when we start looking at the choices that they're making, because once again, neither of them are making the right choices in this situation. 
The second story, Jacob has to repeatedly lie and even invoke God's name in his lie to get what he thinks is owed him. And when his brother Esau is cheated, he makes a plan to murder him. That's where we're at in their choices. And so that's where we ought to start to feel the tension between God's sovereignty and the choices that they are making. Both of these brothers are making unjust choices of which God does not approve. Then we, we hear the anguish, we see the anguish in Esau's voice as he's begging his father for some sort of blessing, and we see an injustice that has been done against Esau. We're tempted to ask this question about whether their unjust choices are some kind of reflection of unjust choices on God's part. And that leads me to the second observation that I want us to see here about God's sovereignty in his choices. Not only do his sovereign choices often defy human expectations, but God's sovereign choices are just despite human questions. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Two weeks ago, we did a a big time jump ahead to Romans chapter 9, which discusses this exact story of Jacob and Esau. And we're going to go back to Romans chapter 9 again, because this story in Romans chapter 9 anticipates our questions about God's justice as we think about how His sovereignty relates to our choices. I'll have it up on the screen here behind me. You can turn there if you'd like. But Romans chapter 9, let me read verses 14 to 18 as it asks this question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Okay, so nobody, nobody tell me we don't talk about the tough stuff that's in the Bible. <laughs> There's some difficult things for us to sort through as we wrestle with what the Bible has to say about the sovereignty of God. The focus of the verses that I just read are not so much uh, intended to explain to finite, limited human beings how God's sovereignty works in all of its intricacies. Okay, you and I, despite our best efforts and the most brilliant minds among us, you and I, as finite beings, are not able to comprehend the infinite. So that already has to put us in a place of humility, a place that we don't like, because remember, we want God to do what we want. 
This passage is, is not so much trying to explain all the intricacies of God's sovereignty to, find, to finite human minds, and it's not providing us with all the philosophical categories we need to resolve all of these tensions. Now, there are philosophical categories exist, and if you want to read about that, there's helpful things out there, and I can point you in some directions. But what Romans 9 does do is provide us with a couple of guiding principles as we try to wrap our minds around the idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility or freedom. And there's, here's the first guiding principle that Romans 9 gives us as we wrestle through this. Guiding principle number one, God's choices are a reflection of His merciful character. God's choices are a reflection of His merciful character. The Bible is providing us advice. Okay, I want to start thinking about this. I've got questions about God's justice. Where do I start? What are some fundamental presuppositions or assumptions that I ought to have as I try to wrestle through this difficult thing that I struggle to wrap my mind around? Well, the Bible says one of your fundamental assumptions needs to be this, that God's fundamental character is merciful. And to support that point, the Bible references God's revelation of Himself to Moses in Exodus, cha- Exodus chapters 33 and 34. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses, whom the Bible says actually got to speak to God face to face. So he's, he's got this close relationship with God. And, and Moses asks God for a favor. He says, Lord, I would like to see your glory. He's saying, I, I, I want to see something of you that nobody's ever seen before. I want, I want more. And God basically says, well, no, because if you saw my glory, if I really showed you myself, you would die. You're not able to handle that. But here's what I will do. You can, you can position yourself at a particular place. I'm going to cause my glory to pass by you. And when I, uh, when I pass you, you're going to be, and he, the Bible says, in the cleft of a rock, between see, some sort of rocky outcropping where he can be between rocks. And God basically says, I'm going to put my hand over your eyes, and when I'm all the way past, I'm going to pull my hand back, as it were, and I'm going to give you a glimpse of it. That's all you can handle. Here's what happens when God does that. Because God doesn't just pass by Moses. God says something when he passes by that's very important, and it's formative for the way we think about the character of God. As God passes by Moses... And he pulls his hand away to just give him uh, uh, just a glimpse of the brilliance of his glory. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now think about all the things that God could have proclaimed about his name in that moment. The Lord, the Lord, powerful, don't mess with me. The Lord, the Lord, holy, holy, holy. The Lord, the Lord, all-knowing, omniscient. 
the Lord, the Lord, everywhere present, the Lord could have declared any of those things about Himself, and all of those things would have been absolutely true. But what did He choose to declare? His mercy. So in one of the most special moments of self-disclosure, of self-revelation in the entire Bible, God proclaims that His character is one of fundamental mercy. So that's got to be a controlling and guiding principle for us as we wrestle through these issues. God's choices are a reflection of His merciful character. Okay, there's a second guiding principle that I want us to see here from Romans chapter 9, and it's this. God's choices are a reflection of His sovereign freedom. This goes back to the point that I was making earlier in the message today. We want God to be free to bend the space-time continuum when it works for us, and we want him to keep his hands off of things, thank you very much, when he does it, when we don't want that. But one of the things that makes God, God, is the fact that he is fundamentally free. He is unconstrained by forces outside of himself. He is free to do as he chooses. And that's what verse 18 it talks about means when it says that he shows mercy on those whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a statement about God's freedom. He is free to do as he wills. And to illustrate God's absolute freedom to us, the Bible uses the example of Pharaoh who enslaved God's people in Egypt. God's people had been had gone to Egypt for shelter and they had found it, but over the course of time it had developed into an enslaving relationship so that they spent some four plus centuries in slavery. God sends Moses to declare to, to Pharaoh that he is to let God's people go and Pharaoh won't do it. And because God is sovereign, there's a sense in which He is behind that. It says that God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart in its verses in Romans 9 that we just read so that He could demonstrate His power and show mercy to His people. Now, at, at first glance, that might seem unjust. And it's okay for you to ask that question. Because the Bible just asked it. The Bible just said, is God unjust? The Bible is anticipating questions that it knows you're going to have. It's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to wrestle with these things. The Bible is giving us permission to do that, and yet it's giving us principles to help us think through these difficult things. This might seem unjust to us, but let me throw out three truths for your consideration that all work together, I think. And so they're, all three go together. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. But they're all dependent on each other. 
Here's the first thing to consider as we work through this. Number one, God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. That may be hard for some of us to hear because that might be a new concept. In our conception of God, we just assume, hey, we've got a problem. Fix it, man. But the Bible in no, in no place tells us that God is in any way obligated to human beings. Furthermore, the Bible, if you read through Romans, I mean, we could spend, you know, we could do a whole series on this stuff. But if you were to read through the book of Romans, one of the things that you keep coming across is the word free and the word grace. Romans makes the point over and over again that, that God's blessing, that salvation comes to us as a gift of God's free grace, which means if it's free, it's not obligated. God doesn't have to show us grace. He chooses to show us grace. So one of the things that might need to be adjusted in our mental framework is that first point, that God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone, though He does. Okay, here's a a second truth that I want you to consider as we think through this. God's hardening is in some sense giving giving a person up to what they want. The Bible can say these two things in the book of Exodus. The Bible says this in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3. This is God speaking. But I will harden... Pharaoh's heart. And the Bible can then say in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. So who is getting what they want? God or Pharaoh? The answer is yes. And this is the tension. God is sovereign over all and yet humans are making real choices within the framework of that sovereignty. The picture that the Bible presents to us of Pharaoh is not a man who is a robot. When Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go, and these are the consequences if you fail to do that, Pharaoh does not say, I would love to. I'm trying, man, but God won't let me. Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, I am, I, I could compete with God. You think God has power? I'm going to show you power. I'm going to keep enslaving you. Pharaoh is doing what he wants. And this is in harmony with, the, with what the Bible has been saying earlier in Romans chapter 1. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, the Bible presents a picture of humanity who has exchanged the truth of God for a lie that worships created things rather than their creator. And as a result, three times in chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, the Bible says God gave them up. Which is why I've said before at various times, 
one of the worst things that could possibly happen is God to give you what you want. The third truth. I forgot to start my timer. I've got a little timer here that tells me, at least tells me when I'm over. But now I forgot to start. I have no idea where we are right now. <clears throat> Let's, uh, I'll try to pick up the pace. Third truth that's going to help you think through this is, the, is this. Humanity is not morally neutral, but is dead in trespasses and sins. That's a Bible phrase. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not just saying that. The Bible says that humanity is dead in trespasses and sins. In his book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, which I recommended to you two weeks ago if you want to explore this a little bit more, D.A. Carson, the author, says this, Jesus does not come to assign some neutral men to life and other neutral men to condemnation. He comes, rather, to a world already condemned and proceeds to save. The question that we're often asking is this, why doesn't God show mercy to everybody? The question the Bible asks again and again is, why would God show mercy to anyone? And the answer to that question is because his fundamental character is merciful and compassionate. And he is the kind of God who graciously and freely chooses to show mercy where none is due. Which means he gives it to people who don't deserve it. People like Abraham, people like Isaac, people like Jacob, people like me, people like you. We'll close this way. If you're here with this this morning and this is new stuff to you, you're like, man, I just wanted to visit church for the first time. But I believe the Spirit can use even the challenging things in the Bible that we have to work through. The Spirit can use those in your heart. And if you feel within you a desire for God's mercy, that's the Lord at work in you. And what we want you to know is that it is here for the receiving. The Bible is going to make this promise in the next chapter of Romans. It's going to say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what are the restrictions on who will be saved? Romans 10 tells us all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you want to experience the Lord's mercy this morning, our encouragement to you, the Bible's encouragement to you, is call on the name of the Lord and be saved today. We're singing at the end in just a few moments. There's going to be people up here. If you need to explore that, if you need to talk with somebody about that, if you need somebody to help you pray, whatever it is that you need, 
you, you take advantage of those people being there. We want you to know God's mercy today. We want you to walk out of here changed. For those of us who have received the mercy of God, and people are always saying, give me something practical that I can take away from this sermon. What can I, what can I put into practice on Monday? What the Bible wants you to do is to step back and worship. To acknowledge once again, there's a lot I don't understand. But you're God, and I'm not. And to have maybe a fresh understanding and gratitude that under no obligation God would give you the free gift of his mercy, that he would lavish you with blessing. And so I want us to say as a prayer together something that comes from Romans chapter 11. It's going to be on the screen. This is what the argument of the book of Romans has been working towards, and it culminates in this in Romans chapter 11, but our, our closing prayer for the sermon today that we're going to read out loud together is on the screen behind me. It comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. If you're looking for how should I as a Christian respond to the great mercy that I've, I've been given, this is it. Let's read it together. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen.